Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, November 22nd, of course, marks 60 years since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, an event that continues to ring through the ages. We head to Dallas to speak to the curator of a museum dedicated to JFK, set up in the same book repository from which Lee Harvey Oswald fired his deadly shots to look at JFK's lasting legacy and the lasting legacy of this day. A tribute concert to the late Gordon Lightfoot will be held at Massey Hall in Toronto next spring. The Canadian music legend would have turned 85 last week. Massey Hall was like a second home to him. He played there more often than any other artist, some 170 plus times. There's an all-star lineup for this concert coming up next May, including Tom Cochran, who joins me to talk about it. We continue our week-long look into chronic pain and the search for relief tonight with concerns about prescription opioid use and older Canadians and how it's too often the easy but detrimental remedy for chronic pain. We get some details and some possible solutions. But first, authorities on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border were on high alert today after a car explosion at the Rainbow International Bridge between Niagara, Ontario and Niagara, New York on what is, of course, the busiest travel day in the U.S. ahead of Thanksgiving. Investigators say now they found no evidence that it was any more than a tragic car accident and not terrorism-related. Uh, a concern, though, in the aftermath of the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. We'll get details on what happened and lessons learned. Well, we begin tonight with some tense moments on the Canada-U.S. border today in the Niagara region between Ontario and New York State. The Rainbow Bridge uh, linking Niagara Falls, Ontario, to Niagara Falls, New York, where a car explosion this morning around 11.30 a.m. local time caused authorities on both sides of the border to go into high alert. Four international bridges were closed. Cross-border train travel came to a halt after a car exploded on the American side of the bridge. Uh, that upended travel plans, and it sowed fear on what is the busiest, keep in mind, the busiest travel day of the year in the U.S. ahead of Thanksgiving tomorrow. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau briefed the House of Commons just a little while after that. There are four border crossings that are right now closed. Rainbow Bridge, Whirlpool Bridge, Queenston Bridge and Peace Bridge. Uh, additional measures are being uh, contemplated and activated at all border crossings across the country. Uh, we are taking this extraordinarily seriously. Right. Uh, President Biden was also briefed. It came not long after FBI Director Christopher Wray warned a congressional committee about a heightened risk of extremism linked to the Israel-Hamas war. Well, late today, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said there was no evidence at this time that terrorist activity was behind the explosion at the border crossing. Have a listen. Stress levels are already high, and we've been on heightened alert since October 7th. That's why it's so important for me to stand here and tell the world based on what we know at this moment, and again, anything can change, there is no sign of terrorist activity with respect to this crash. The governor says it's not clear whether the driver of the car was intentionally heading for the bridge across the Niagara River when the vehicle hit a median and flew into the air. The car flew over an eight-foot fence before it burst into flames, uh, she said. Have a listen. I saw the video of an airborne vehicle that was absolutely surreal. You actually had to look at it and say, was this generated by AI? Because it was so surreal to see how high in the air this vehicle went, and then the crash, and the explosion, and the fire. 
again, the most recent reports, no explosive material found, not an act of terrorism as far as anyone can tell. Uh, the occupants, a man and a woman who are believed to be a couple in their late 40s, early 50s. Uh, investigators told the New York Times they may have been coming from the nearby Seneca Niagara Resort and Casino. Christian Luprecht is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and author of Security, Cooperation and Governance, the Canada-U.S. Border Open Border Paradox. Christian, thank you. Ben, good evening. Yeah, I mean, just the timing, right, of this. I, I was just to watch the way this this event spread around the news and social media. It was just like wildfire. Yeah, I would say the system worked that way it was intended to work. Uh, that in the end, other than the individuals in the car, there was no large-scale harm done, um, that the system responded uh, in terms of uh, providing security and precaution at the border crossings, but without overreacting. You know, we're not shutting down airports. We're not shutting down other sort of border crossings uh, elsewhere. But it's also a reminder of just how fragile the border system is. So 80% of land trade between Canada and the United States goes over six bridges, and those bridges are at 100% capacity. So if you shut them down, even for a matter of hours, and you saw this also during the Ottawa convoy, for instance, with regards to the Windsor crossing, this will have repercussions for the Canadian economy. And this is why this is ultimately an existential issue both for Canada, and this is why the Prime Minister would have uh, would have wanted to be apprised, uh, and for Michigan, because, of course, Michigan's tr- uh, Michigan is one of the 33 U.S. states that has Canada as its top trading partner. Right. And New York State, obviously, because it was right there. I think there was quite a bit of, I mean, I think the situation in the U.S., you could tell today, because Thanksgiving is tomorrow, today is a very busy travel day uh, with what's going on in Israel and Gaza right now. I get the impression that everyone was on heightened alert, certainly on the American side of the border, and this incident, uh, not that there was an overreaction, but there was certainly a very rapid and serious reaction. Yeah, so, um, and that would have also been a function of the intelligence posture of uh, having anticipated that after uh, October 7th, I mean, as had been reported uh, by U.S. intelligence services and by the U.K., uh, heightened sort of concern about prospective acts of uh, extremist violence, um, and also drawing some attention to uh, to this country. Um, but I think what's important is the difference to 9-11, where, of course, 9-11 randomly shut down the border, uh, caused massive harms and delays, whereas in this case you saw a fairly resilient and isolated response. Uh, and you also saw that the, uh, the border uh, had been appropriately Uh, secured in the sense that this is not a vehicle that ultimately uh, was able to cause mass carnage, whether that was uh, by intent or by consequence, um, and that everybody knew what needed to be done, including, for instance, on the Canadian side, uh, bringing in large trucks to uh, cordon off the border to make sure that um, uh, any other sort of risk uh, would be immediately mitigated. So I think this is a system that shows where, rather than politicizing the issue, we left it to the security professionals and to the border professionals, uh, both to close the uh, the border and uh, then to subsequently reopen the border. Right. I mean, clearly, uh, listening to both Marco Mendicino, the Prime Minister, the Governor of New York, uh, anything that was coming out of Washington, it seemed like everything, everyone was on the same page today. And that, that was impressive. And I think that's a matter of reciprocity. And that's what makes the Canada-U.S. border so different, that ultimately, it is the closest, not just trade, but security 
bilateral and binational border relationship in the world. Um, and so you can see on the one hand the confidence and the reciprocity with which both sides dealt with one another at the political level um, uh, without avoiding any overreaction on either side uh, and the professionalism with which uh, both sides, uh, Canadian and U.S. authorities on either side of the border, uh, responded to the incidents, communicated uh, to the incidents and having the trust and confidence uh, that both sides knew what needed to be done both in order to respond to the incident uh, and to ensure that you provided, um, uh, you, you, you mitigated any uh, additional risks that might be emanating uh, from the situation because, of course, once you have uh, one possible threat, uh, then you have to mitigate against other possible threats. How much has the, the conflict, I mean, clearly the, uh, the FBI uh, director was talking about this last week. Uh, you haven't seen it. I mean, of course, where I am, you don't see much of it. But how much has, has security been tightened since everything, uh, since October the 7th? So I would say what you're seeing is not a difference in posture, in part because ultimately we don't want to be mitigating threats at the border. The tendency we've seen over the last 25 years is governments pushing borders in and pushing borders out. So if you think about pushing borders in, for instance, deportations, inland deportations by people who are uh, illegally in the country and pushing borders out, trying to, for instance, if you're not a U.S. or a Canadian, you're flying to Canada, you know that you need to have, fill in an enhanced travel authorization before you even come to the airport and get on the plane to North America. Um, and so this is really very much an intelligence effort to try to make sure that you mitigate uh, any threat to the border long before that threat ultimately shows up at the border. And so the border is really your last line of defense, not your first line of defense. Christian, when you look at what happened today, I guess, I mean, also, I mean it, uh, you know, obviously a tragedy for the families of those involved uh, in this crash. But outside of that, from a national security perspective, um, I suppose there were lessons learned yet again today. It seems the car got pretty close to that border, too. Yeah, so a lot of these border crossings have been redesigned in recent years with two purposes. One is to speed up the flow. Um, since there's no more resources at the border, you want to maximize the flow through. Um, and the other is with security in mind. So this is why many of the approaches are no longer straight up approaches to the border, but why, for instance, you have curves and the like. Uh, so we've optimized for, uh, for both of those, precisely because one of the elements that you inherently uh, want to protect against, uh, given that vehicles have been weaponized over the last uh, 15 plus years uh, for various types of attacks, you want to make sure that uh, you put neither the officials who are at uh, the port of entry at risk, uh, nor um, other um, members of the public that are inherently waiting. I mean, the Canada-U.S. border, there's 400,000 people who cross every day um, and about uh, $3.5 billion worth of trade that crosses every day. So that's uh, what you see when you roll up to the border uh, and you uh, have your relatively short wait um, uh, in light of the relatively large volume of traffic and goods that cross. Yeah, I mean, even this bridge alone, 6,000 vehicles a day. I, I think we forget uh, just how fluid the border is. And sometimes on days like today, it's a reminder of uh, how security works at, at what is, you know, what has always been a sensitive security border for both sides. 
Yeah, and it shows that Canada and the United States are really one <coughs> one integrated economic uh, and travel region, um, and that they have been for decades. The cooperation on the border really only goes back to about the late 1990s in the way we have it today, and there's been a lot of very rapid and very steep learning. Uh, but the fact that Canada and the United States have a trusted relationship in a way that uh, it is much more difficult to find on other borders is also what facilitates the the free trade of goods and people. Um, and so it shows that an open border is, in fact, a well-managed border, and that includes a well-managed um, and resilient security response to the sort of incidents. Um, and there's a lot of takeaway here because, ultimately, open borders is what generates prosperity and what generates uh, stability between countries. And so uh, the response that we have here uh, we could only hope for in terms of the professionalism and coordination across many borders of the world, where the world would be much more prosperous and much more stable if we could have that professional uh, binational and bilateral relationship. Yeah, I suppose that would be the takeaway today, that uh, that the system responded in the way that it was supposed to, without too much. I mean, there were, there was a lot of appeal for calm early on, and I realized that uh, just looking across social media and across some of the newscasts and so on, I mean, there was a lot of speculation early on, but I thought politicians did a pretty solid job today of trying to tamp down some of that more panicky speculation that was going on. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation, because we might argue in the 21st century, the single most important instrument of statecraft is the information environment and immediately making sure that you get a hold of the narrative and you do not let your adversaries, such as Russia and China, exploit um, any uh, possible weaknesses um, in your performance. And so that means that ultimately authorities had to communicate effectively and politicians had to communicate effectively, if nothing else, than to instill the confidence in populations that there's no ancillary risk here, that authorities have matters in hand, that everybody can continue to travel in the United States for Thanksgiving, um, and that you can ultimately trust uh, that this is an isolated incident um, that is under control and the ultimate litmus test is always, it's, it's kind of like an accident on a highway. How quickly can you get the highway reopened? In this particular case, it's about how quickly can you reopen the border? And I mean, you can't underestimate the complexity because effectively uh, you have an investigation, including a criminal investigation on the go. You have an emergency response um, uh, to the situation. And at the same time, you need to be able to uh, plan to reopen the border and get the traffic flowing again. So these are very complex operations, all of which needs to be managed in parallel. Christian, as always, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Ben. Thank you. To Ottawa now, where a jury, after about three days of deliberation, has found an ex-RCMP intelligence officer, Cameron Ortis, guilty of sending sensitive information to alleged criminals and money launderers. Uh, again, after almost three days of deliberation, they found Ortis guilty on four counts of breaching Canada's official secrets law, one count of breaching trust, and one count of misusing a computer system. The 51-year-old had pleaded not guilty to all charges. This trial was a very big deal. I'll let someone with more knowledge about it explain. But Ortis' arrest back in October of 2019 sent absolute shockwaves to the Canadian security and intelligence community and outside of Canada as well, because he'd been the top civilian intelligence official at RCMP headquarters in Ottawa. And that means he had near unlimited access to criminal and national security intelligence collected by the Mounties, uh, by CSIS, and partners from our Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, of course, the Americans, the Brits, the Aussies, um, and the Kiwis, and the New Zealanders, I should say. Uh, his case filing went to trial this past October. It was a 
strange case in the sense that not all of it was held in public because of the subject matter involved, of course. Uh, both the Crown and Defence team arguing the central question was whether uh, Ordis had the authority the authority to dangle sensitive intelligence in front of alleged criminals. Now, according to his version of events, Ordis was attempting to lure targets into an encrypted mail pla- uh, email platform that would then allow other Western intelligence services to see that. And he said it was sort of a storefront operation is what was it was called during the trial. Um, and it was meant to be shared email- – those emails meant to be shared with an unnamed Western intelligence service. I don't think he ever did name them, at least not publicly. Um, the prosecution basically said that the information that he was sharing uh, was not designed to do this at all, that, that really the motive was, was profit here. Um, Ordis will be sentenced in January. He could face many years in jail. Uh, to talk more about the trial and the impact of the whole the whole affair is Stephanie Carvin. She's an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa. Stephanie, thank you. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back on the show. Yeah. I mean, this has been such a big case. It kind of, it, like all trials, especially ones that aren't all done in public, it's sort of people where I think we're sort of paying attention off and on. Uh, just your reaction to the verdict, it was, I, I thought it was relatively quick considering the complexities. Well, yeah, I I wasn't sure how this was going to go, but um, given all the data, all the information that was put forward, you're right, it was it was pretty quick, uh, quick. Um, I imagine that a lot of people around Ottawa, and that's where I am right now, I'm in Ottawa, are are probably feeling a sense of relief. I think that I mean, mean, beyond like the case, the allegations and stuff like that, I mean, this was not some kind of junior analyst. This was someone who was known in national security, you know, circles here in Ottawa. I personally have two friends who worked with him or they were his or he was their counterpart, for example. And and they were shocked. They were stunned when this happened. Right. Uh, It's not it's not what you expect. So I expect that there's a lot of relief. But the the other thing is here, too, is that, um, you know, this was, as you say, a pretty significant case. The first time the Security of Information Act has gone to a jury trial, um, it's hard because a lot of the information in national security cases tends to be classified. And it's hard, it's hard I think, to charge someone with leaking classified information and then taking them to court to prove it without then uh, disclosing that classified information. It's, it's a bit of a catch-22. So the fact that this was successful, I think, is is a very good thing for uh, Crown prosecutors, and uh, especially, uh, and, and I'll end on this point, we do have two other security of information cases upcoming in this country, the first with another uh, RCMP officer named Major, who ha- is is accused right. of um, uh, leaking secrets or uh, violating the Security of Information Act, as well as an individual in Quebec who uh, may have been selling secrets to uh, China, I believe, um, and has also been charged under that act. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a good start for for these two other trials that'll be coming down the road. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting about this case was the defense, uh, because because he was essentially they kind of sort of agreed that this information had been shared. Uh, where the difference was, where, where really this whole case boiled down to, was the motivation for it, and whether or not he had the, whether or not he had the permission to do it. And I, I guess from that perspective, uh, it was an interesting way of trying to frame a defense for it, basically saying that he was working with another foreign uh, intelligence agency trying to lure criminals in. Uh, clearly, the prosecution offered a very different story, and the jury sort of unequivocally 
bought what the prosecution was saying. Yeah, I mean, the defense was patently ridiculous. I wouldn't final. know, but I, I thought so. It sounded a bit ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's it's just so ridiculous. Like, it's not even. It's like someone said it was like a spy novel. I'm like, it's not even a good spy novel. It's it's just it's just so so. It was such a crazy defense. I mean, the idea is, I mean, look, anyone who's worked in government would know the layers of approval to do basically anything. I mean, the layers of approval you need to buy muffins for a meeting, you know, goes up such high levels. Um, the idea that someone would be able to run a clandestine operation uh, without telling literally anyone in the RCMP that they were doing this and working with the state is just so beyond what would happen in a government environment like that. It's just, it's just hard to underestimate or hard to overstate rather. And, and, you know, even, even if you've just been in a normal bureaucracy, like, you know, the amount of forms that you have to fill out to go on vacation to, you know, claim your dental, all these kinds of things. And then this guy says he's running a clandestine operation to protect, you know, to find insider threats. I mean, please. Um, It's just, it was such an unrealistic, um, you know, it, it was a Hail Mary of Hail Mary defenses. And um, when it was going on, I was just I was genuinely shocked that this was the defense that, that he was putting up. Right. So listeners understand who he was um, accused of having dealt with are some pretty unsavory people. Right. In the first case, it was a B.C. businessman who was accused of selling phones that could uh, avoid um, police monitoring, right? Um, the idea was that um, back in the day, everyone was using BlackBerry, RAP BlackBerry. Um, but the the fact is, you had BlackBerry phones, and you could they were programmed so they could avoid uh, the BlackBerry message center, uh, which they felt like police had access to, and or could could at least put could put surveillance on. So those were the phones, and he was offering to sell information to this criminal. Um, for $20,000. And actually, that was one of the emails, I believe, that was presented um, in this case um, uh, going forward. So uh, that was one. And then there was a second case, I believe, of three money launderers. I don't know if that case actually went anywhere, but basically offering um, these criminals information that would help them evade capture or let them at least know that they were under surveillance, right? So, you know, it wasn't necessarily national security threats per se, but the fact is he was trying to sell information to anyone he thought he could pay in the criminal world. And I have no doubt that if he felt that some of this information could go, you know, if selling you know, information to the Russians, um, Chinese, Iranians, I, I think if he felt he could make a quick buck, he would, he would actually do it. So, um, but yeah, these are the individuals that he was accused of, um, uh, of, of trying to deal with. Do you know? Do you remember? Because I remember reading this, and now I, I'm now I'm forgetting what the alleged motive was. I mean, I think it was just, according to the prosecution, was just profit, right? It was just profit uh, or, or greed, essentially. But I'm, I'm trying to think back if that was if that was the motive. There wasn't a disgruntled, like there was no, it, he wasn't disgruntled, or there was no kind of revenge going on. It was pure financial gain. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, first of all, because he de- denies it. Um, but also, I think the issue here is that um, uh, he had done his PhD on China, right? He was considered to be a China expert, um, you know, before he, he worked his way up the ranks of the RCMP. 
So I think there was some initial speculation that this could be China. But in the end, uh, it turned out that, no, it wasn't China. It was um, uh, it was just pure profit uh, from what we can tell. It doesn't seem to have been motivated. You know, it's, it's interesting. When we talk about insider threats, we talk about, um, you know, different kind of motivations. Some people use the acronym MICE, uh, which is money, ideology, compromise, and ego. Um, for reasons why people do these things. And they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like if you do it for money, right. you might also do it for ego because you think you can get away with it. Um, and, uh, or, you know, alternatively, if you do it for ideology, you might also be doing it for ego because you feel like maybe you're getting one up on your boss. But there doesn't seem to have been, beyond money uh, and maybe a little bit of ego, there doesn't really seem to have been any other motivation, at least publicly, that we're aware of. Stephanie, I guess just the lasting impact of, of this, because at the time, I'm sure, I mean, we didn't hear all of it, but uh, there was certainly a lot of shock, as you mentioned off the top, about this. And I'm sure it uh, caused some discomfort with our allies as well. It did. Um, look, I think what's really important to stress here is that all of our allies have had similar situations. I mean, uh, we still talk about Edward Snowden today, right? Um, uh, you know, there's definitely been leaks and and across the the Five Eyes, and but I mean that's no excuse, right? So you know, when this happens in Canada, we have to take it seriously, and in fact, perhaps even more seriously because we are a net consumer of intelligence. In other words, if um, we we basically take in more intelligence than what we provide to our allies. So we have to be seen as taking these allegations extremely seriously. And the ability to prosecute them, I think, is, is a really strong signal to our allies that, yes, we will do everything we can to make sure your information is safe and that if someone betrays our trust, we will do everything we can to prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Um, so certainly today, I think, um, the, you know, I talked about a sense of relief around Ottawa, um, the fact that this prosecution was successful, but also I think, you know, the fact that this does send a pretty positive message to our allies is is important. Right. And, and just looking at, at his situation, I mean, people in his shoes are, are given an immense amount of, are instilled with an immense amount of trust, right? And if you decide to break that trust, uh, it can be a little bit hard to spot. I mean, I, I didn't see anything in his background that would have suggested that this was happening or, or, or a risk. I mean, perhaps it should have been spotted. Who knows? Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you, 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 you entrust certain people with these responsibilities, and if they choose to break them, uh, sometimes it, it can, be hard to, can be hard to predict and stop. Right. I mean, circumstances always change, which is why if you, know, if you join the national security community in Canada – uh, or if you're an employee of it, you are subjected to security clearance every five years, right? Um, they do a renewal on you. One of the things that, you know, we've since learned about um, uh, this case is that Cameron Ortis was able to successfully avoid security clearance checks for a number of years through various promotions, through, I guess, never being available and things like that. And he also seems to have created a very toxic work environment around him. There was a lawsuit shortly after his arrest uh, alleging that he was uh, abusive. Um, and this may have been a way to try and get people to maybe not notice what he was doing. So I, I think, you know, having a good workplace environment is really important. Taking, um, you know, if someone's acting a little strange, it doesn't mean you should fire them, but maybe you need to look into what's going on take them to an employee assistance program, something like that. 
And finally, um, the fact that, you know, Cameron Ortis may have been able to avoid some of the security checks that should have been applied every five years is is a substantial failure. So that's something the RCMP is also going to have to look at, um, whether or not we have good, uh, you know, transparency into, into what they're doing. I, I doubt the, the RCMP is a fairly closed investigation, but I have no doubt that they're probably looking at some of their policies and procedures um, now and, and going forward to avoid this from happening again. Yeah, one would think there had to have been a postmortem uh, within the RCMP after this one. You, they would have to have been. He faces a pretty stiff. Uh, I mean, I was reading today the prosecution is looking at perhaps twenty years. I mean, he's already spent some time in jail before the trial, but this is this is he could spend significant time in prison. Yeah, and again, I think it's part of sending that message to other potential insider threats or people who would sell similar information. It's also a message to our allies again that we're taking this seriously. Um, you know, the other, it's interesting, the other Security of Information Act case we've had was um, Jeffrey Delisle. I don't know if you or mm-hmm. your yes. listeners remember yeah. that. Yeah, so he was a naval officer who um, decided he was going to sell uh, secrets to the Russians. He blamed his wife. Of course, he blamed his wife. <laughs> personal, what's personal responsibility? Uh, he blamed his wife um, for, for upsetting him. Um, he was sentenced, I think, to 20 years, but only he served only part of that. I believe he's now free and on parole out in um, back in Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, like you don't even if he's sentenced to 20 years, whether or not he full, serves a full sentence, I, I doubt just simply because it's a nonviolent crime. Uh, even if it was serious, even if it had serious results, it's, um, you know, I would imagine, you know, asking for 20 years, he, he may serve seven or eight. Um, that seems to be how the system works, certainly how it works for Mr. Delisle. With the major difference, however, that Delisle pleaded guilty. Um, right. So because he pleaded guilty, that might actually have an impact. But, you know, I, I'm venturing into legal territory and I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on the radio occasionally. Play one on the radio. Um, so I'm going to be a little careful. But, um, yeah, it is, I, I think, Going for a stiff sentence is important as a deterrent. And the fact that he is going to be appealing, um, the fact that he you know, hasn't pled guilty may factor into, in, into uh, considerations. But again, I want to be careful where I'm speculating here. Stephanie, as always, thank you. Hey, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We've been uh, talking all week about uh, chronic pain and the search for relief. We're going to continue talking about it tonight. Before we get there, though, I've been asking you to share some of your earliest memories of big world events. Market Newmarket has a great one. July 1969, I was seven, and we took a small boat across the lake to a neighbor that had a TV signal so that we could witness man landing on the moon. Uh, the V station was just a local repeater out of Bancroft or Halliburton, Ontario, and the clarity was poor, but the memory is etched. Yeah, Mark, that's, that's a great one because it's positive too. It's, isn't it awesome? Uh, I, I remember hearing all those stories from the early 70s, people sort of looking at blurry TVs, watching Paul Henderson's goal, for instance, and all that, all those things and how they're etched in your memory. Another listener says, I used to live in Dar es Salaam, um, Tanzania, and I remember in 1994, the Rwandan Civil War started following the assassination of President Javier Amina, uh, Rumana rather, who died in a plane crash, if I remember correctly, on the 6th of April, 1994. I recall we had the day off as the Civil War started there. Yeah, that was a huge moment. And what ensued from that uh, was was terrifying, obviously. So keep them coming. Uh, your earliest memory of a major world event, because we're going to be talking in the next hour about the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which, of course, is today, November 
1963. Uh, so this week, we spoke to Lara Pingway about her story of developing chronic back pain back in August of 2018 and what ensued as she tried to find relief and cope with that pain. Last night, we spoke with Dr. Hans Clark. He's Director of Pain Services and the Medical Director of the Pain Research Unit at Toronto General uh, about how the medical community is tackling a pain and what, what some of the issues are. Here, have a listen. Everybody wants the quick fix. Everybody wants that magic bullet or the silver bullet. You know, what's the one thing that we can all take and just get back, get on with it? And, you know, that's uh, unfortunately a, a part and parcel of what kind of happened with the opioid crisis. And, you know, those opioids were, were quite a strong medication that, that you know, is very helpful in the acute pain setting, but we didn't monitor it up enough. And so uh, many people ran into trouble with that. You can hear all our interviews, of course, on the podcast, which is up there every night, a littlemoreconversation.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Uh, as Dr. Clark was talking about opioid prescription, and that oftentimes uh, prescription medication is the easiest option for those living with chronic, chronic pain. That's particularly true for the segment of the population that most suffers from it, and that is older Canadians. Opioids are very commonly used in that population to manage pain symptoms. According to a recent study, compared to all other age groups in this country, older adults have the highest rate of prescription opioid consumption, as well as the highest rate of the side effects, overdoses, and mortality associated with prescription opioids. It says that Canadian healthcare professionals need to re-examine pain management strategies that are taught to current and future prescribers. With more on this is Dr. Samir Sinha. He's Director of Geriatrics at the Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. He's also Director of Health Policy Research and Co-Chair of the National Institute on Aging. He's one of the report's lead authors. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. We talk so much about the opioid crisis in this country, and I think the face of it has become very much sort of, you know, street use of fentanyl. That often involves um, younger people and so on. But you point out that one of the sort of one of the hidden groups of people finding their way through this crisis is older Canadians and prescribed opioids. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a report that we've titled Out of Sight, Out of Mind, because that's precisely what's happened. Uh, we we often think about the opioid crisis as being one, the younger people and uh, illegal narcotics, for example. But when we actually look at prescription opioids and, and who they're being prescribed to, it's actually the majority of the folks who are receiving these prescriptions and consuming these opioids happen to be older adults. Older adults are the ones who are more likely to be living with chronic pain issues or undergoing surgeries or other acute medical procedures that might require the use of opioids in and around those issues. But this is also a trickier population to prescribe opioids in because they're also the ones that are more likely to have the unintended consequences related to opioid prescriptions. When we look at what's been learned uh, over the last decade or so about the, let's call it the overprescription of opioids, how did that impact what was going on within that older population? Because, again, I, I don't know enough about it to know whether this was a population that would go seek out these opioids on their own. Probably not. And yet, I suspect that the amount of opioids being prescribed was was altered once it became clear that there was a big problem out there. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, given the fact that this is a population that's more likely to experience pain and therefore as a physician myself, you know, you want to obviously treat that pain. Then when opioids came on the market, they were just yet another tool that we could actually use. And I think there was a, probably a lot of underestimation about how benign these medications were at the beginning. But then also, as we started understanding that, yes, they can be addictive and, and they can be problematic, I think there was also the added problem that people didn't appreciate 
how problematic they can be in older people, such as opioids can cause complications like constipation, for example, but also uh, more drowsiness, fatigue. It can cause more confusion. And so these can all add up to a lot of additional complications, including other drug-drug interactions, all things that could lead to uh, emergency department visits. Uh, they could lead to as a result of falls. Um, and then they can lead to, you know, people needing hospitalization or if they have too much on board, it can lead to their death. It wasn't that people were out there seeking these medications. It's just that they were being readily prescribed them. And perhaps by prescribers who didn't fully appreciate how the same dose that might be appropriate for a younger person could actually be quite challenging for an older person. And hence why we're seeing not only a lot of the prescriptions happening in this population, but a lot of the complications and a lot of the negative impacts of them happening in this population as well. Right. And I suspect, and you mentioned obviously chronic pain being more prevalent amongst older Canadians and and sort of those niggling pains as well. So you know, I, I gather that opioids, uh, pr- the prescription of opioids for a while was seen as a bit of a magic magic bullet, right, for this sort of thing, because unlike sort of acute events that happen to younger people that may or may not endure when it comes to chronic pain, for older Canadians, chances are that chronic pain in some way, shape or form is probably more more long lasting. Absolutely. And that's kind of the nature, if you will, of chronic pain. You know, so, you know, every once in a while we'll have a small procedure. We might require a little bit of pain management. But, you know, for a lot of older adults, you know, by nature, if you're having pain that's ongoing after a number of weeks or or a few months, then that's really how we define chronic pain. So people are living with arthritis, for example, or if you've had a nerve injury or other or other problems, lower back pain. And as you said, right, we we at the beginning when these medications were out there, it was seen as a magic pill. These can be very effective medications for dealing with pain. The question is, are we maximizing non-opioid medications in the first place or other non-opioid therapies in the first place that don't involve medications at all? And then if we are using opioid medications, uh, are we using kind of the right doses and are we using them in the right ways so that we don't potentially lead to people getting too much or potentially becoming addicted? Right. Because as you pointed out in the report, there's both a lack of information about the scale and scope of, of adverse events, so to speak, or OA, I guess it's OAU, opioid. I'm trying to remember the exact term terminology for it. But amongst older Canadians, there actually isn't that much data out there. And there aren't a lot of options either for them if they want to treat their chronic pain in ways other than with a pill. Yeah, so you know, we come with a whole bunch of challenges with this. A, it's we don't teach you know common prescribing for older adults or even geriatric training in our medical schools the way we do pediatric training. So I think a lot of prescribers who hold the pen and 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 are able to prescribe things out there don't necessarily have an appreciation how treating pain in older populations should be a, a, approached in a more cautious and and more appropriate way. As you mentioned, we also have a lack of data. We We don't really have very clear data on the implications of opioids and their complications uh, in our population. So even to do this report, we had to go and collect or, or gather data that the Canadian Institutes of Health Information had, but it wasn't readily available. So you had to kind of A, get the data, then parse it through and realize that even the way we prescribe opioids vary significantly between our different provinces and territories. And then you see where the complications lie. And then, as you mentioned, a lack of options. We know that often when people have access to multidisciplinary pain clinics that can introduce you to other therapies like physiotherapy or massage or other things can often allow 
you the opportunity to maybe potentially not have to use any opioids as well. When we don't have all those pieces together, it can just mean that we're starting to prescribe uh, a little bit in the dark, um, hoping for the best and knowing that we're probably not serving our older patients as well as we could. Uh, Dr. Sinha, when you look at this situation, I mean, you went out to get this data. So clearly you were able to get a somewhat clearer picture of what the problem could be. And obviously, having written this paper out of sight, out of mind, uh, you you have spotted some issues that, that are of concern here. Yeah. So we, we know that, as you mentioned, that while the good news is, is that the rates of opioid prescriptions are starting to fall in our older population, they're still extremely high. When you look at Canada as it compares to other countries around the world, we're still within the top three nations worldwide in terms of the rates of opioid prescriptions amongst you know our older population or just in general. So we are still very much a country that's using a lot of these uh, medications. And we're also using them in varying ways across the provinces and territories. So when you look at the data, you're like, wow, they're prescribing, you know, almost twice the rate in some provinces and territories as others. Um, and that's really, you know, really a challenge. I think now that we have a better awareness about how opioids can be very effective medications, but they need to be managed well and, and with, you know, with respect, we then can start making sure that we start taking appropriate actions, making sure that anybody who's given the ability to prescribe these medications understands the population they're prescribing them in, appreciates that opioids should not be your first line of treatment so that we can we can reduce the need for using opioids in the first place, and then also making sure that we're also collecting good, robust, robust data and making sure that's readily available so that we can see, are we actually tackling this issue in a productive way um, and making sure that we're, we're, we're not seeing the negative harms from opioids as we have been at the rates that we have over the last number of years. I imagine we also want to strike a balance too, because pain management, as you point out, opioid prescription opioids can be an important part of, of a pain management program, but you just have to be careful. Absolutely. And I think this is the this is the way. So, you know, people say, well, why do we have such a problem with opioid use disorder, not just amongst younger people, but older people? And sometimes it comes with indiscriminate, you know, prescriptions that have happened. So, you know, I recently kind of experienced something that that reminded me, ah, this is how it all happens. I broke a tooth and I had to get it pulled. And I remember, you know, chatting with my dentist who then said, we're going to pull the tooth. There's going to be some pain for 24 hours. So I'm going to give you um, some Percocets. And I said, okay, fair enough. But I thought, wait a minute, right? You know, should that be my first line agent as as a narcotic-based medication? Because really, when I got home, I said, I don't really want to be taking these. Maybe I can just get along with just some extra strength Tylenol, which is what I did. And I was able to do that on a regular standing basis. And that's actually the same thing we do for patients who come to, to our hospital with hip fractures. We give them standing Tylenol or standing acetaminophen. And I was able to control my pain. I was able to not even touch the use of a narcotic. Um, and I avoided you know, that potential risk of me taking something that I didn't necessarily need and the potentially developing an addiction as it relates to that. But you can even say more broadly, for example, we're not making use of things like physiotherapy, massage and other things, heat and cold, or even things like over-the-counter Tylenol before we start reaching these things. So we talk about the idea of a pain ladder. And it's almost that sometimes we start in the middle as opposed to starting kind of at the bottom and working our way up so that we can 
use opioids when they're absolutely necessary, but not necessarily starting there. And that's that's gives you some of the sense of how without that additional knowledge and that approach, um, we can easily run people into danger um, if we don't kind of take a more measured measured approach to this. Right. I suppose that would be your advice to older listeners or caregivers as well as just get informed about what it is that you're being given and taking. Yeah. So get informed about what you're taking and just kind of say, you know, that a lot of my patients, you know, will say to me, you know, you know, like, I don't want to take a narcotic. I don't want to get addicted. And I'm like, absolutely. That's why we're going to maximize X, Y and Z first. It's not just about putting the onus on prescribers, but also people receiving prescriptions to kind of have those extra questions. Is there anything else I can do, you know, to better manage my pain without taking a pill? And then if I do have to take a pill to try and manage my pain, you know, what are, you know, the the less harmful agents or the non-opioid agents I could start first? Can we maximize those before I go to these? And then what are the complications I should be looking out for um, so that I can not be caught off guard, but appreciate whether these things are too strong um, and whether I'm having complications related to these medications to them. I think having that dialogue is important because it allows people to be more proactive and potentially avoid some of the negative harms associated uh, with opioids uh, as well. Well, Dr. Sinha, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Gordon Lightfoot would have celebrated his 85th birthday last Friday. Of course, he passed away on May the 1st. Uh, The 16-time Judo Award winner, five-time Grammy nominee, songwriter, Hall of Fame inductee. It goes on and on and on. He passed away, of course, on May the 1st. I mean, he encapsulated the best in Canadian music with songs such as The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the Canadian Railroad Trilogy, If You Could Read My Mind, Sundown. There are countless. There are many, many of them. Uh, Lightfoot performed across the country, across the continent, around the world, but downtown Toronto's Massey Hall was really his second home. He played there more than 170 times, can you imagine? More than any other artist in the venue's 129-year history, including the last show before it closed for renovations in 2018, and the first show when it reopened back in 2021. So it's only fitting that that Massey Hall will be the site of a tribute concert to Gordon Lightfoot called Celebrating Gordon Lightfoot, which is coming up on May the 23rd of 2024. The lineup is really impressive. The house bands are Blue Rodeo and members of Lightfoot's band, as well as artists like Sylvia Tyson, The Good Brothers, Burton Cummings, and my next guest, a legend, a legend as well, and someone who is close to uh, Gordon Lightfoot over the years, Tom Cochran. And he's in the middle of a tour in Western Canada right now. And he joins me from Chilliwack. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Hey, Ben, it's uh, it's my pleasure. Tell me about this tour. It sounds like yeah, you've been busy and it's two different kinds of concerts you're doing. You're doing sort of the full, you're doing the full, full on, and then you're doing an acoustic uh, one as well. Yeah. On this, yeah. On this run, we just, uh, we started out with a couple of, uh, you know, full band shows. And then we branched out, and it's the first time I've done this this extensively. We we do a lot of these duo shows. Bill Bell and I, my uh, my cohort in crime, my, my guitar playing guy, you know, music director. Um, but this is the longest uh, run of these that we've done. So it's since 1975 when I toured with Jose Feliciano, the first time doing a lot of PACs across Canada with Jose Feliciano opening for him. So it's. Uh, yeah, to do these small halls and these wonderful rooms, these PACs, and have them be sold out is 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 really cool, and and actually have people wanting to uh, hear the stories and that it's it's it it it's been a lot of fun, and and uh, it changes every night, so it's it's um 
I guess it's prophetic that we're going to talk about the the great bard himself, you know, Gordon Lightfoot and the tribute concert in the spring, which I'm extremely um, honored to be part of. And, uh, you know, he kind of wrote the book on this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's deeply missed. He's, he was an amazing man. And uh, yeah, it's just great. It's, it's, it's a real honor to be part of it. Yeah, I guess it would have been his 85th birthday, I think, this this past week, or maybe a little bit earlier. But what a great idea to do it the way you're going to do it. How did it come together? Uh, well, actually, I, I suppose Kim and the family, they put it together. Uh, you know, uh, I, I just found out about it, um, you know, through 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 you know my business sources and they asked me if i wanted to be part of it and of course i said absolutely it's uh, i wouldn't miss it you know so uh that's about as much as i can tell you i've been asking you know uh, uh, i was asked i think my preference of songs to play and of course uh early morning rain i i, I truly love being being his first hit actually with with ian and sylvia and the great ian tyson of course passed away just a while ago as well which uh another great canadian artist and songwriter so uh, i don't know i have to defer to, to sylvia on that sylvia tyson on that one because I, I believe she's going to be there as well so um uh it'd be a lot of people wanting to do that song and summer side of life would be another one canadian railway Tri trilogy although that might be a shade ambitious i would love to do and edmund fitzgerald of course um but it's going to be um it, it, it's it's going to be one of those uh you know one of those very sweet uh you know very sweet evenings in the spring uh which was you know in that time of year was dear to gordon because I, I don't know how many times he played massey hall but he would play i think four times uh when he booked himself in there they they do four shows and he, he's done that since i don't know i guess the late 60s so it's uh it's going to be poignant it's going to be a wonderful evening and it's going to be uh going to be a lot of smiles and a lot of happy faces and, and a few tears as well so uh looking forward to it yeah we had sylvia tyson on the show actually not long ago because she has a new album out she actually has what she's calling her last album uh so she'll be oh, there as well which is great well, i hope not well she's, that's what she said i don't know whether that's true she sort of feels like this should be her swan song but she wasn't yeah. committing to it um well, she's amazing amazing person just yeah. such Great oh yeah it's it's yeah it's it's always uh her career the things that she's done the stories that she tells are are yeah it's uh yeah it, it's pretty it's it's astounding what she's seen and done over the years oh, yeah. um I, I i had to look this up i guess gordon played massey hall more than 170 times yeah, so isn't it fitting that, that you do it and i guess part of the proceeds of this are going to keep what he used to call a second home i guess are going to make sure that it stays okay and also a bunch of programs around it are funded yeah i mean i i i would i assume that that they that kim would direct everything towards the charities that he that were closest to his heart heart and and some of the causes so uh i hadn't gotten into it that much you know so uh, but yeah I, I, that that sounds appropriate yeah you've played massey hall too what 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 is what is it about that i mean there are many great halls across the country but what is it about massey hall that's so special oh man there's just something ingrained in that room and and god bless dean cameron who was the managing director of it and, and really headed up the the renovations of the place but it was very special to dean and i i mean dean and i were, were bandmates when we were kids and, and and dear friends 
and uh, we went to our first concert there. We saw we saw the birds there. That was very influential with us. We we, we saw Lightfoot there, of course, uh, but and we also saw the band who was very dear to our hearts. Uh, the, all their music and and we we covered a lot of that stuff of of actually all three of those artists you know when we were coming out and at the time we were coming out you know kids everybody wanted to hear zeppelin and they wanted to hear you know uh, uh black you know deep purple and 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 artists of that nature and and i remember we did the gananaki uh canoe club down in gananaki ontario and kids were running out going don't go in they're a country band <laughs> We were playing a lot of Sweetheart of the Rodeo, a lot of Graham Parsons songs, and a lot of band songs, and some Lightfoot and stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's it's. Uh, it, but Massey Hall is just magical. I mean, I think one of the greatest jazz records of all time was made there with uh, with with the great Charlie Parker and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and that back in the early fifties. Actually, the year I was born, I think fifty three. So I think some really seminal records were made there. And uh, uh, rumor had it that Johnny Cash uh, uh, proposed to June Carter there, but I think it was London, Ontario. I don't don't know if it was Massey Hall, but Massey Hall was right in the mix with that they were playing at the time. But it is just it just has that historical component and. You know, the thing is, Ben, and they've corrected this now with a modern sound system in that it it had the most incredible sound if you were under a certain dB level. You know, but once bands got got really loud and they started going there really loud, then it, it wasn't really suited for that. But but things like uh, the seminal um, uh, Neil Young record that was that that he he recorded there, such a brilliant record. Uh, you know, acoustic music sounded brilliant there. So, so it was it was Gordon's room. I mean, that was the room he kind of he put that on the map, and he put uh, you know in in the modern era, and he put Mariposa on the map. And uh, last time I saw Gord was was two years ago. Had a bang on the um, banging on the door of our trailer door um you know I, I was headlining that night at mariposa and they'd finally they'd open it again because it, it was a seminal uh kind of folk festival the greatest in the world i believe back in the day when it was on uh toronto island and then they for whatever reason it it uh they closed it down for for quite a few years and then then it started up again near near Mariposa, you know, near Aurelia, where it should have, where, you know, Stephen Leacock's uh, um, fantasy town of Mariposa. But also, you know, Gordon's uh, neck of the woods. So, uh, you know, it was kind of prophetic that, um, I don't know, you know, kind of profound for me that that was the last time I, I chatted with Gordon. And uh, I had a bang on the door, and it wasn't Wiggy, his, his other road manager. It was a new road manager, and he would bang on He says, you know, Gordon's here, and he's here to see you. And I went, are you kidding me? <laughs> He says in the, he's in the trailer next door, and he said, "Will you come talk to him?" And we, this was like fifteen minutes before showtime. So I said, "Absolutely, are you kidding me?" So I went over there, and and Gordon was really talkative, and Kim was there, and Margaret, who was is Kim's best friend, Gordon's wife, um, and and she was she's the wife of of my of the first gu- guitar player in Red Rider, believe it oh, or not. Yeah. Arvo Lepp, who had passed away quite a few years ago, but Margaret is was one of Kim's best friends. And we chatted with Gordon, I'm, and, and then I'm looking at the time, and we're half an hour late going on. And and Gordon's really chatty that night. And you don't tell Gordon, you, you don't you don't cut Gordon Lightfoot off. You just no. it's just one of the things you just do not do, you know, in in this life. So um, we just 
you know, he was re- regaling us with stories and that and finally said, Hey Gordon, you know, I, I got to go on. And, you know, I, I wanted so, so bad to ask him if he, he'd come up and sing. And he interjected, he said, would you, would you like me to sing? And I said, oh, man, I, you know, I would never be so bold as to ask you, but that'd be incredible. He says, well, I, I'll tell you what, what if I go out first and, and I'll sing? I said, anything you want to do, you know, this is your festival. You put this festival on the map. And I said, uh, you, you know, you are the bard, sir. And uh, he went out uh, on a chair and sung, uh, if you could read my mind. I asked him to sing Canadian Railway tri- Trilogy, but he said the same thing. He said, I think for tonight, that might be a little too ambitious. Like, I, I want to do this. I called him up and I said, Tom Cochran, Rick Mercer calling. How'd you like to go to Afghanistan and entertain the troops? He said, sure, when do we go? That was it. It was like I was asking him to move his car or something. <laughs> He's a great guy, Tom Cochran. So now, please, Camp Julian, please put your hands together and welcome to our stage, Davina Doyle, Kevin Fox, and Music Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Tom Cochran. Make some noise, Camp Julian. Tom Cochran is with us this half hour. We've been talking about a tribute concert to Gordon Lightfoot, celebrating Gordon Lightfoot coming up at Massey Hall in Toronto on May the 23rd. Uh, Tom, I was just looking, this is one of those things, because I, I was talking to another band about playing in Afghanistan recently. And it occurred to me that I'd watched something back in 2003 when you were in Kabul with Rick Mercer. And I thought, yeah. and you played a Christmas concert there. And I thought, what an experience that must have been to go over and do that back then, long before a lot of us knew very much about the place. It was, I'll tell you, it was phenomenal. I mean, on the one hand, uh, Ben, it was um, to to be able to to get in front of the troops and and to see how much they appreciate us, appreciated us being there, uh, and have a guy like Rick there with you. That that you know, he's such a galvanizing force with people, right? And he and he's one of these comedians. He doesn't alienate people. He he makes people feel feel pretty warm and fuzzy in that. And, and on the other hand, you know, the, the second night we played, there were a bunch of, um, you know, real strapping infantrymen, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in, you know, decked out in their, in their flag jackets and all that stuff. And they got called out because there was a miss. Somebody got into one of the palaces. There were two palaces that were on either side of the camp, Camp Julian that we were in. And it was the first Canadian camp in Afghanistan and somebody had broken in and they actually had a, had a makeshift rocket pointed at the camp. And so these, uh, you know, volunteers were, 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 were taken out and they, and they went, went to take care of that. And uh, so, I mean, you, you didn't, and you could hear airstrikes up in the mountains or American airstrikes. Um, and it was, you know, so we, we, there was a, this eminent feeling that there there was danger, but you felt really safe being there with the troops and just how much they appreciated us being there. Yeah, I I, I was going to ask you about your favorite Christmas song. And then you told me you played with Jose Feliciano. So I'm assuming you yeah. heard Feliz, Feliz Navidad. Navidad. Feliz Navidad a few times. But there's <laughs> another guy. Quick story about him. You yeah. know, talk, there's something about us folkies, you know, the, the guys that play acoustic guitar and stand up there on their own. He was doing regaling a bunch of journalists with stories and that they're asking him questions. So he's doing the scrum at the end of his show or before he goes on, that's when he liked to do it. And I was opening for him and I broke a string and I had my buddy from high school was helping me as road manager. He knew nothing about tuning guitars. So he's in a panic because I got one guitar out there. I have to go back to the other guitar, but I've broken the string. He comes into the green room and he's going, can somebody help me? I, I, I know nothing about this. And, uh, 
real professionals at the time. We were just getting into it at that point, Ben. And then Jose overheard this and he stopped his interview, told all these guys, I got something I got to do. Give me the guitar. And he felt the string and he told Dave what string to go get. Within seconds, Dave ran back with that string and and he put it on in with in record time, like 15 seconds. He had it tempered and it was in tune and it was on the guitar. And, you know, that's that's the kind of guy he was. He was incredible. And, and you know, Gordon... Although I was never in a situation where I was playing uh, uh, opening for Gordon Lightfoot and 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 playing with him on tour, but he was that kind of guy. He was always very. Um, uh, I, I found in the times I met him, he he was very curious and he was always thinking about other things going on around him and that and, and uh, uh, you know wanting to take everything in. So it was, um, yeah. So I just wanted to re- relay that experience, but that was, yeah, that was that that first tour. I'll never listen to Police Navidad the same way without thinking of that story. Tom, as always, Amazing. thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Ben. It's it's always a pleasure talking to you, and you're one of the best out there, man. You do your research, and and uh, it's much appreciated. It's always always a pleasure talking to you. From Dallas, Texas, the Flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Walter Cronkite on this day, 60 years ago, announcing that President John F. Kennedy had been shot and killed uh, while riding in a motorcade in an open-top car. Everyone remembers that, uh, the images alongside his wife, Jacqueline uh, Kennedy, uh, in Dallas. Um, a lot of you today, when I've been asking about your earliest memory of a world event, a lot of you have brought up uh, the, this day, 60 years ago. Cat and Gimli writes, one of my earliest memories is hearing of the death of President Kennedy. I was seven. I walked home from school to find my mother on the driveway, surrounded by several of the other neighborhood moms. They were all crying, and I asked what was wrong. And my mom said, they've killed him. They've killed Kennedy. I always watched the TV news with my parents in the evening, so I knew who he was. I couldn't fathom how someone so powerful and famous could just be gone. Linda in Richmond writes, one of my unforgettable events is when President Kennedy was shot. I remember then Vancouver Sun newspaper headlines. First one was Kennedy shot down. A few hours later, the headline was Kennedy shot dead. And uh, Marilee in Leduc, Alberta says, Hi, Ben. I was in high school in the library for a study period. The class clown burst into the room and said President Kennedy had been shot. The teacher sternly told him to sit down and be quiet. After class, I went down to the office and all the secretaries were crying. I couldn't believe it was true, but of course it was. I remember the shock of it like it was yesterday. And it's just one of those moments. I mean, I remember my parents talking about it. I was born in 1970. So, um, I mean, I feel like I've been on Daily Plaza because it's such a part of history uh, and the book repository and so on. Uh, but what a moment in time. Everyone remembers that day. And I think that's part of it. Uh, and then, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald and the fact that he, too, was shot and killed just a few days later by Jack Ruby uh, has led to people being sort of fascinated by the Kennedy legacy, the Kennedy assassination and what happened around it. Right. Um he was just 46 at the time, of course. He was young. Uh, he was this breath of fresh air as this new leader of the television age in many ways. Um, and so there's been, I mean, despite that 10-month Warren investigation, or the Warren Commission uh, investigation, that concluded that Oswald assassinated Kennedy, that there was no evidence that either Oswald or Ruby were part of any conspiracy Conspiracy theories exist to this day. In fact, in some ways, it feels like conspiracy theories were born on that day. I remember so many things in the 70s, you know, whether it be Watergate and so on, 
all those kind of very dark movies uh, that sort of looked at conspiracy theories and the shadowy other and these shadowy forces out there. It turned us in, it, it brought us from a time, and this is simplistic, but it feels like it brought us from a time of simplicity to a time of, you know, a, a, a different time, a sort of a time of cynicism and paranoia. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit. And all that to be said, if you go to Dallas now, the very floors from which, or the floor from which Lee Harvey Oswald is meant to have fired his shots, the sixth floor of the book repository, uh, has now been transformed into a museum. The sixth floor museum at Dealey Plaza chronicles the assassination and legacy of, of JFK. Uh, and of course, with fewer and fewer people around today who can still share the stories of having been there that day, the museum is also collecting interviews with more than 2,500 of them. Stephen Fagan is the curator there, and he joins me now from Dallas. Stephen, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Just so listeners know where you are, I mean, there couldn't be a more poignant place uh, in the history of this day than where you find yourself right now. Yes, we are in the former Texas School Book Depository right inside Dealey Plaza at the edge of downtown Dallas. And it was from our building, from the sixth floor, that shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade 60 years ago. It's remarkable to think. I, I know people must come to see it. I think I've never been there. I was born seven years or seven years after the fact to the almost a day, a day, seven years and a day later. But I feel like I've been there. I think everybody feels like they've been there. It must be different when you're there in person. It is. It's it's interesting. This is such a recognizable site to people around the world through books and magazines and documentaries. When people visit, the the main thing I hear from them is how small and intimate the space seems. Images and um footage makes the plaza look vast. And it's actually just a very quaint three-acre vehicular park that functions as the gateway to downtown Dallas. And it's just extraordinary because you want to believe that something where monumental world history took place is this vast, epic landscape. And it's actually a very, very quaint park. Right. And people who come, I mean, the 60 years later, the continued, I wouldn't call it an obsession, the continued fascination with JFK, the continued fascination with this day is hard to overstate. It, it absolutely is. The 60th anniversary is an opportunity for us to reflect upon everything that's happened since the assassination, the ways in which President Kennedy's legacy remain with us today, uh, an, an opportunity to examine some of the lingering questions that still surrounds his death. For me, the, the real poignancy of this particular anniversary is the absence of so many of the important storytellers. We have, just since the 50th, 10 years ago, we've lost so many of the key eyewitnesses and police officers and journalists involved in the story. We reach this juncture now where very rapidly the assassination is fading from memory into history. Right. We see that with so much with the legacies of the Second World War, for instance, veterans passing. You, though, at the museum and you personally, have set about trying to maintain, to capture that history so that we don't lose it. Absolutely. That is a real passion project for me. Our ongoing oral history project has recorded almost 2,500 interviews with people from all around the world sharing their memories of President Kennedy, the assassination, and the broader history and culture of the time period, like civil rights, the Peace Corps, and the Vietnam War. And it's this vast repository of firsthand accounts that we share online at our website, jfk.org, so that current and future generations can have this tangible link to the past. 
Tell me about the questions that remain, because, of course, having been born in 1970, I grew up in that era of kind of the conspiracy theory movies, the parallax views, the the shadowy underworld. Nothing is as it seems. And it feels like so much of it, so much of it was born on that very day. Certainly, the Kennedy assassination helped to contribute, if not launch, the modern day conspiracy culture that we are surrounded by. You know, at first, the real question of conspiracy centered on the Cold War. Was Russia or Cuba involved? Because we were at the height of the Cold War, only a year removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. But as you say, as we get into the 70s, the era of Watergate, post-Vietnam, and these congressional investigations that exposed abuses by the intelligence communities, when, when you find out for certain that the CIA, for example, had tried to kill Fidel Castro and utilized elements of organized crime to help them in that task. It's easy to look back to Dealey Plaza and imagine what if something similar happened there. So yeah, this notion of the deep state really kind of emerges from the the shadows of the grassy knoll, if you will. And uh, it is definitely something that you can draw a line from Dealey Plaza to to where we are today in this in this culture. What um, I, I know, the museum itself doesn't take a position on what happened, on who on who is responsible. I mean, I think we according to the Warren report, it was Lee Harvey Oswald on his own. Stop anybody, scratch anybody, and they might have an opinion on this. It's one of those sorts of events in history that everyone seems to have an opinion on. Um, what did you hear about that day? And how much do we know now about what happened on that day to try and dispel some of these conspiracy theories? Well, the the Dallas police, and I I should point out that this was a local homicide under the jurisdiction of the Dallas Police Department. It wasn't until after the Kennedy assassination that Congress passed a law making it a federal crime to kidnap, attempt to murder or murder the president or vice president of the United States. So at the time, Dallas police... Uh, led this investigation with the the help of the FBI, and they built a pretty strong case with physical evidence tying Lee Harvey Oswald to the rifle, to a bullet recovered at Parkland Hospital. They felt like they had a good enough case they could easily go to trial. The district attorney, Henry Wade, later of Roe v. Wade, uh, told reporters on camera, broadcast nationwide, that he felt beyond a shadow of a doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald had killed the president. Of course, what changed everything was Sunday when this nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, steps into history, kills Oswald on live television, preventing us from having a trial, ensuring that there would always be these questions lingering about the assassination. When the Warren Commission came out in September of 64 with 26 volumes of hearings and evidence, it allowed amateur armchair assassination researchers an opportunity to really pour over original evidentiary material and begin finding contradictions in the official narrative. And very, very quickly, conspiracy theories began suggesting there may have been more to this story than just Lee Harvey Oswald. And Gallup records that there's really never been a moment since the time of the assassination when less than half of the American public did not believe in a conspiracy. Remarkable. And we st- and part of it is we still have no idea why, right? I mean, the, the why will always be out there, even if you accept completely that it was Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald. I've always t- tended to lean that way, but I don't want to get into a fight with my listeners. But we still don't know why. Lee Harvey Oswald is in many ways a complex and very mysterious figure. Even though we know so much about his background, there's still so much we don't know for certain. You know, when you imagine the mindset 
of a man in this southeast corner window on the sixth floor with a rifle as President Kennedy drives by, it's easy to apply whatever motive to him that you want. We have an artifact on the sixth floor, uh, really close to the sniper's perch window, actually. It's Oswald's wedding ring. And I point to that when people ask me about possible motives. Oswald and his wife were separated at the time of the assassination. He had spent the night with her before and um, asked her to move back in with him. And and she fully intended to, but she was not ready to reconcile that night. Oswald went to bed angry, got up the next morning very early, and he went to work in this building with a package wrapped in brown paper, leaving behind for the first time his wedding ring in a teacup on her nightstand with most of their savings in cash. And for so many people, that wedding ring offers a potential motive. Maybe this was simply the act of a man who knows he's never going to go home again. Maybe if he had reconciled with his wife the night before the assassination, the course of 20th century American history would be different. But but where conspiracies come into play, it's it's the idea that that is a deeply unsatisfying, downright frightening idea that's, that world history can be affected by a disgruntled ex-Marine sharpshooter who is simply having a problem with his wife. Uh, if that can happen, anything can happen. And so conspiracy allows us to amplify the Kennedy assassination in such a way that Kennedy dies for something uh, in a patriotic battle against these dark forces in the intelligence community, uh, battling organized crime, it allows his death to be infused with meaning when it's very possible this could have just been a, a meaningless act of violence that changed history forever. Well, from our CBS newsroom in New York, a bulletin, Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who Dallas police say killed President Kennedy himself, is dead. He was cut down by a single bullet an hour and 15 minutes before he died in Parkland Hospital in a room just 10 feet from that room where President Kennedy died. Stephen Fagan is curator of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. That, of course, today, 60 years ago today, uh, was the site of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, perhaps one of the most famous assassinations in world history, the most talked about, scrutinized, theorized about. Uh, we've been talking a bit about the conspiracy theories surrounding it. Um, Stephen, as, as we sit here in 2023 and look back to that day, it does feel like much has changed. I think I heard you say in a different interview that that was the day that folks started locking their doors, that something changed. And we, we kind of wax poetic about the loss of innocence, but it did signal a turning point in history. One, when one looks back, it's easy to say, but it feels like it. It, it did. And that, that reference to locking doors, that's actually something my dad told me. He turned 11 years old the day before the Kennedy assassination. And he, my entire life has told me that is the day we started locking our doors. My mom uh, had a similar experience. And and really, and doing this oral history project, I found this same thing with baby boomers from all around the world, this notion that in hindsight, the Kennedy assassination takes on this significance as a watershed moment that ushered in so much of that violence and skepticism and social unrest that permeated the 1960s. It's easy then to look back at a geographic spot like Dealey Plaza where world history changed and say, this was the moment we lost our innocence. It was after this that we had civil rights violence, the escalation of the Vietnam War, the deaths of Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in 1968. That whole 60s experience is really bookended by the two 
Kennedy assassinations in November of 63 and then finally in June of 68 when Robert Kennedy is killed in Los Angeles. When we take all that you have uh, at the museum, then we put it together with all the archives that have been released. I gather it's about 99%. I guess we know most about what everyone knew about that day. And yet the doubts remain. The doubts remain. Do we know as much as we're ever going to know? Or do you think there's still more to be found out? Well, yeah, as you say, 99% of the previously classified documents all gathered at the National Archives have now been released or redacted. Uh, The 1% remaining, I think, is largely personal tax records and information that might still be dangerous for um, intelligence sources or probably the descendants of intelligence sources in foreign countries. Uh, Not having seen them, I don't know exactly what's in them. But no, no smoking gun emerged as these documents were systematically declassified over the years. Um, We're simply left with questions, questions about the medical evidence, what the physicians at Parkland Hospital in Dallas observed versus what those at Bethesda Naval Center for the president's autopsy that night observed, the way in which certain pieces of evidence like the Manneker Carcano rifle. Um, the ways they were handled, uh, shipped from Dallas up to the FBI lab and back, and suddenly a, a palm print belonging to Oswald emerges, and there's questions about when and how that palm print got on the weapon. If every piece of evidence in this case, if you turn it slightly, it tells you a different story, and that is maddening for some researchers that uh, that there simply is no resolution because in many ways you can't trust all of the evidence. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate your time and your insight on this tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Let both sides join in creating a new endeavor, not a new balance of power, but a new world of law where the strong are just and the weak secure and the peace preserved. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet, but let us begin. That was President John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech back on January 20th, 1961. Of course, today we're marking the 60th anniversary since his assassination on November uh, 22nd, 1963 in Dallas. Uh, And while we a lot is focused again on his death, the way he died at just 46, America's 35th president, um, there's also, of course, a lot about how he lived and his legacy, uh, the glamour, the politics, the family. Camelot and so on. I mean, the Kennedy name still occupies a very big position in American folklore and even to this day. Um, Joe Biden wrote this, or at least the White House released this today, and it was pretty telling. On this day, we remember that he saw a nation of light, not darkness, of honor, not grievance, a place we are willing, where we are willing to postpone the work that he began. Um, sorry, let me... On this day, we remember that he saw a nation of light, not darkness, of honor, not grievance, a place where we are unwilling to postpone the work that he began and that we all must now carry forward, which is a nice tribute to uh, to JFK. And I think that was a lot of it. I mean, certainly it was the time, right? Uh, the baby boomers were sort of hitting their teens and there was this sort of post-war optimism about things. And along comes the first sort of TV-friendly, dashing, smart, 
um, new president, right? A, a president for a new time. And the assassination um, cut that short. What could have been, right? What could have been with JFK? We, we won't know. And that, of course, is part of the mystique that surrounds his life and his very short presidency. In fact, he was president for such a short period of time. He didn't really leave a large uh, legacy as president. But his legacy is rich, and it's worth talking about tonight as well. John Shaw is the head of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. He's also author of JFK in the Senate, Pathway to the Presidency, and Rising Star, Setting Sun. John, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Ben. You know, I wasn't born until 1970, but I feel like I was there that day because it's been talked about. I mean, being born then, I've sort of been surrounded by the assassination of JFK most of my life. People talking about it, people remembering it. I gather you were you were young, but you were in school in Cleveland. That's right. I was in first grade, and I'll never forget. I mean, just these this image because it was sort of the end of the day, and you know, it was a Catholic school, and the principal came across the loudspeaker and said, "Would everyone please stop? President Kennedy has just been shot in Dallas." And as we're little kids, I mean, we sort of we knew who President Kennedy was and we understood, I guess, the concept of shootings. But but then there was a pause. And about 15 minutes later, she got back on the intercom and said that he had passed. He had died in Dallas. As I remember, school was dismissed. I remember I went home uh, to my folks who are just devastated. And uh, and I remember also just watching the funeral that weekend because it was, you know, it was obviously blanket television and just even as a young kid trying to grapple with the images of this, you know, the coffin with the uh, the American flag, you know, being, you know, walked through this, the streets of Washington. And then they would shoot back to the visuals of, you know, Kennedy's presidency, you know, playing touch football, you know, cavorting with his young kids. Um, and just the kind of discordance between those two images was was, you know, hard to deal with. And plus, without getting into, you know, another tangent, you know, two or three days after Kennedy was shot, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot, you know, on television by Jack Ruby and just, you know, intensified the confusion and bewilderment of that whole whole that whole occasion. Yeah, I mean, even in retrospect, for those who weren't there, it feels like the entire country was kind of thrown upside down by these, you know, this sort of strange, disgruntled former military guy who defected to Russia that people didn't know much about, Lee Harvey Oswald, and all of a sudden he's assassinated as well. I mean, it was, I, I was around obviously for 9-11, and it strikes me as being something as discombobulating, although very different, as that. It was, and, and there was, of course, you know, this was the height of the Cold War, so, you know, your first thoughts go to, you know, was the Soviet Union involved, was Cuba involved, Um you know, then there was, you know, the speculation about, you know, the CIA, uh, you know, FBI, you know, the mafia. So it was just these whole swirl of uh, and I think the most striking thing, and I think this is kind of goes to the essence of Kennedy, is that, you know, he was, you know, this young, dashing, uh, still popular president, seemingly at the height of his powers, you know, glamorous family, wealthy family, glamorous wife. And just in an instant, all of that was over with. And uh, and then his successor, Linda Johnson, you know, who went on to have a complicated, in some ways, successful presidency, but was such a starkly different image than that of Kennedy. So everything about it seemed um, seemed convoluted and hard to grasp and hard to understand and, and even bewildering. 
Right. And yet so much of, of about that day 60 years ago is still talked about. I mean, I'm always astounded by people how much people know about JFK when they don't know about a lot of other things that happened 60 years ago or even 40 years ago. But JFK has maintained this place in the popular imagination. Uh, and, and his assassination is still talked about. People still have opinions on what might have happened to him six decades later. Ben, every book talk I've given, and I always start out establishing that, you know, I, I, I know a fair amount about Kennedy's congressional career, his presidency, you know, a lot of aspects of JFK. But I, I always say, you know, I'm not an expert in the assassination. And like the first question I'm asked is about the assassination, you know, and, yeah. and it's funny. And even in my own life, my dad was a civil engineer for Caterpillar Tractor Company, you know, Iowa farm boy, sober, thoughtful. And he was utterly fascinated by the Kennedy assassination. And he was, you know, reading all the documents and reading the the Warren report. And I have an older brother who was a Silicon Valley executive, you know, who's into high tech. And here he, he also was utterly, you know, fascinated by the, the Kennedy assassination. And it's, you know, it's sort of the ultimate murder mystery. You know, how did this happen? Um, you know, so much was, was um, you know, hard to fully understand, you know, so much speculation on you know various motives and so forth so yeah this has been you know clearly it was one of the the singular days in you know in american history and certainly history of the last you know century it was really one of those you know unforgettable moments when one looks back i mean it's easy hindsight is so easy when it comes to these sorts of things but it's this idea that it went from sort of sort of the leave it to beaver generation to kind of like the parallax view generation right this sort of it went from sort of apple pie america to conspiracy assassination don't trust anything shadowy figures america now i know that's very facile but it feels like in retrospect that's kind of what happened on that day well and i mean i think a lot of the the intrigue with kennedy is the, the the questions that it, pr- it prompts his death prompts about you know what might have been and particularly that I think connects to your point because you know the the, the 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 decades that followed certainly the decade that followed was you know extraordinarily turbulent in American history you know the assassination of Martin Luther King his brother Robert um, others you know the the, the tumult over uh, you know Vietnam so. You know, Kennedy, in some ways, his assassination is is kind of sometimes thought of as, you know, the end of America's innocence and the ushering in of a new age that was far more complicated and messy and uncertain and even scary. So so I do think that there is this, you know, this, this kind of moment, this kind of pivot moment in American history where we tend to think, you know, particularly from the distance of, you know, 60 years, you know, we tend to think of, you know, the sort of the pre-assassination days as, days of hope and and optimism and then after that is a much more complicated and and darker time and uh and of course you know you know even during kennedy's presidency when you study it carefully i mean these were you know this was not all you know springtime in america i mean there was a cuban missile crisis there was the bay of pigs debacle vietnam was ratcheting up civil rights was roiling you know, the, 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 the quest for, for more civil rights was roiling the streets. So it would be wrong to see, you know, everything before November 22nd, 1963 as a, an easier, simpler time. But I think now as we, we look back on, you know, the Kennedy, we oftentimes have his assassination as kind of the pivot point from a, a more innocent America to a more complicated and contentious America.
uh, John, his legacy uh, endures today, and sometimes it's hard to figure out because you've talked about this. He wasn't, because he didn't have much time, I think about a thousand days in office, he wasn't a particularly consequential president. In some ways, um, you know, he, he wasn't allowed the time to be consequential, and, and that kind of makes his legacy whatever you want it to be, whatever you thought it could be. I think that's right. And I think it's, it's interesting. So many people, you know, take the the Kennedy uh, image, his, his legacy, and they kind of mold it to, to advance the arguments they want to have it have molded. I mean, I've seen, you know, lots of uh, authors, you know, look at Kennedy as sort of the paragon of kind of, you know, post-Cold War uh, liberalism. The, I, other people say, you know, Kennedy was actually kind of a closet conservative. Um, so his, his, you know, he was in president for less than three years. Some important things happened during his presidency. Certainly, I think the thing that he did probably best was, you know, navigate us through a really difficult patch of the Cold War with pretty good skill. I mean, he made some mistakes for sure, but he had this sense that kind of a calmness, a steadiness. Um, in critical times, I'm thinking particularly of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he showed the kind of you know steady, clear leadership that um, I think is important. But I think as I think of you know Kennedy's legacy and why he endures, the one thing that it's maybe obvious, but in some sense he was our first TV president. Um, television was essential in his election. I mean, he was a, a a young lawmaker with not even a particularly you know distinguished resume. But, you know, he was compelling on TV. He exploded in 1956 as a star of the Democratic Party, sort of like Obama, Barack Obama did in 2004. Um, you know, obviously, TV was critical for his election, the debates with Richard Nixon, in which, you know, his his visual uh, uh, compellingness, you know, basically, you know, won the day. I mean, on substance, he and Nixon were pretty, pretty close, but he, you know, he, he really prevailed in the debates largely through television. His inauguration was, again, you know, sent around the world and showed kind of the glamour and uh, and and kind of youthful confidence in terms of his governance. I mean, TV was essential for he was the first American president to, to use uh, live uh, press conferences. Um, which was really, really critical. So people um, felt like they knew him then. I mean, he was he was closer to people than other presidents had been. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we had this sense that we knew him in a way that probably really didn't. But yeah, I mean, so, you know, TV was, you know, essential for his governance. And then, of course, his assassination was captured on TV. His funeral was captured, you know, on TV and transmitted around the world. So I think we feel like we know Kennedy in a way that we knew no other president before him. Somehow, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's compelling. And, and I was just thinking, you know, when you, as, an, as someone who studies American history, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a far more consequential president than, um, than, than JFK. You know, Lincoln, of course, that almost goes without saying. But, you know, you could even maybe argue that Ronald Reagan was a more consequential president. Um, and and I, so I think a big part of, of Kennedy's mystique was that he was, you know, the first one captured on television and also, you know, was a martyr at the age of 46. And we are left with these kind of haunting questions of what might have been, what did happen after Kennedy's death was oftentimes troubled and and um, and contentious in American life. So we sometimes wonder if you know life would have been better had had he not been in Dallas in November of of nineteen sixty three. John, thank you so much. My pleasure.